You can open up to John 14. We're going to continue our study there. It's amazing to to think that about six years ago, we were in the very beginning stages of planting this church. We were gathering together in our living room and launching our first growth group. We started a Bible study on Sunday mornings, working through Colossians, and we were just beginning to do a midweek growth group where we were going to read God's Word individually and then come together and talk through what we were learning. And we, we spent a lot of time in those early days talking through how we were going to study the Word. And we were going to kind of use a system that we call KFCA uh, to study and meditate upon the, the Scriptures. And we, we spent so much time talking these things through uh, and how we've chosen and landed on that because that is how we grow spiritually. We, we have to, to learn and understand something. We have to know something intellectually, and then, uh, that, that's the knowledge, then we have to choose to believe that in faith, the F. So knowledge has to go beyond just mere head knowledge into, do I really trust and believe this? And then if I trust and believe this, that's going to change who I am internally, my character, and then eventually that's going to work itself out into my life. And I remember talking through that, in, in the growth group, and there was a, a gal there, and she, after I was done explaining that, she said, well, if I, if I did that, I wouldn't struggle the way that I do. And I said, exactly. That is exactly right. Uh, if we, we were to, to handle and study God's Word in that way, well, we would be able to address a lot of our struggles. And we all struggle, whether we like to acknowledge that or not. We all need help with life's problems, but we don't always want help with our problems. Sometimes when solutions are offered, we don't like them. We're instructed from God's Word, and sometimes we don't like what we hear. Now, there are sometimes there are legitimate reasons for uh, rejecting a, a proposed solution. And the first one would be, it's not from God's Word. There are, there are many resources out there that, that have poor theology. Or theology that's off like two degrees. And it sounds good initially, but if you begin to live it out, it's going to take you way, way off course. Maybe not three months from now, but three years from now, you're going to feel the ramifications of that false teaching that you've embraced and begun to believe. So we need to reject anything from a, a bad source, from a false theology. We can reject something that's founded upon faulty logic or based upon human wisdom rather than, again, the truth of God's Word. So there are times where we need to reject proposed solutions, but there are also times where we reject solutions that are good. We reject proposed solutions for bad reasons. Most often this is just pride. We, we don't want to hear the truth. Sometimes it's painful, and especially in the moment. You know, we always love that when your spouse, spouse points something out that's exactly 100% true, and you know it in the moment, but what do you tend to say? No, that's not true, and you're proving the point as you try to defend yourself. Usually pride that, that prevents us from accepting help, from accepting change. Sometimes we don't really want to change. And sometimes 
We really do want to change, but we don't know how. We need help and assistance, but we don't know what type of help or how to apply the truth of Scripture that we know. We know the answer for the test, but what does it look like to to trust that in faith, and how should that change me internally? We need help. What's amazing and profound is that in this passage that we are working through, John chapters 13 through 16, which is known as the farewell discourse, Jesus is going to to give his disciples, he's going to explain to them the kind of help that he's going to send, but it's not the type of help that they expect. He's going to take them by surprise. But Jesus is promising the hope that we need for change in this life. He's promising them the ultimate help. So we have to, to understand what Jesus is is promising them here and what all of the implications of his promises are. And these chapters 13 through 16, they are predominantly Jesus speaking and teaching in the final evening of his time with the disciples prior to his arrest and crucifixion. Sprinkled throughout the, the dialogue are going to be a few questions from the disciples. And those are going to, to prompt Jesus to, to answer in response, and that's going to lead to more questions. The questions begin in chapter 13, verse 36, with Peter. Who else would begin the questions, right? Peter says, uh, after Jesus has announced that he's going to be leaving and departing, Peter says, where are you going? Jesus says, well, you're not going to be able to, to follow me. And he seeks to, to give them hope, pointing them towards uh, his future return, even as we, we heard uh, during the Lord's table this morning, the Lord is going to come back. And he points to how what he's going to be doing in the meantime of preparing a, a house, of preparing a place for his disciples in heaven with the Father. To the beginning of chapter 14. And then Thomas asks him, Lord, we, in verse 5 of chapter 14, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how do we know the way? We studied and saw that Jesus answers that he himself is the way, the truth, and the life. That's in verse 6. Then verses 7 through 14, Jesus made three promises to his disciples that they would experience if they trust him. Right now that their faith is shaken, this man that they've followed for the last three and a half years, the the son of God who they've seen his miracles, they've heard his teaching, and now he's saying, I'm going to leave you and you can't follow. They're shaken to the core. So they're saying, Lord, we don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. And then verse 8, Philip says, just, just show us the Father. That is, that is enough for us. And Jesus, heartbroken, and in the very next verse, says, Philip, haven't you been with me long enough that you understand? That, that you've been walking with me and in seeing Jesus, he has seen God the Father as well? Because the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. Profound theology of the Trinity is found in this chapter. So Jesus made three promises in verses 7 through 14. That they would know and see God the Father if they trust in Jesus. That that they would do indeed greater works than Jesus has performed. He promised that in verse 12. And then in verses 13 and 14, Jesus promised that if they ask anything in His name, and we talked about what that means, not a name it and claim it, not, not uh, God being a, a genie, being obligated to answer anything that we demand in the name of Jesus. But if we pray in accordance with 
his person, his purpose, and in his perfections that God will answer. Then verse 15, connected with God answering prayer, is our, our love for Jesus. Yet if we truly love him, not merely announcing and saying that we love him, but true love for Jesus is going to be demonstrated in our actions. There's KFCA right there. But then that conditional statement in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is going to, to promise some additional help in the, in the two verses that we're going to study this morning. He's going to promise help, but it's not the kind of help that they were expecting. You look with me, beginning in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the thought continues, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate that he may be with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Jesus makes these promises to the eleven disciples. And you might think, well, that's great for them. But what's profound is that All that Jesus promises and teaches in chapters 13 through 16, when we get to chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer, Jesus is going to to pray for all of those things to be applied, not only to those disciples there in the first century, but to all of those who would come to faith in him through their word. Jesus prays for us in John 17. And all of the promises in John 13 through 16 extend to us as well. But what help does Jesus promise to his disciples once he is gone? That's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see that he promises a person, and he promises how that person will help them. But let's pause and pray once again. Father, you are holy. And righteous and just. You are eternal. You are absolutely sovereign. You have planned the end from the beginning and are working all things in accordance with your will. And we now pray, knowing that it is in accordance with your will, for us to grow, for us to learn. From your word, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds by the power of your spirit. And that you would bless the proclamation and study of your word this morning. That you would use it to feed and nourish our souls. To draw us near to you and to glorify the name of Jesus. Amen. What we're going to to see in verse 16 is that promise of a person. Specifically the promise of an advocate. Verse 16 says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate that he may be with you forever. Jesus makes this promise, and and really in in making this promise, he's promising that he is going to do something. That he is going to ask the Father for something. And again, this is mapping out what he he just said uh, and promised to his disciples. That if we pray anything in accordance with his name and his will, what would God do? It would be answered. And now Jesus is saying he's going to go and pray according to the will of the Father, and the Father's going to answer. Jesus is going to pray for an advocate, for a helper. 
and the Father will give, He will send that helper. What's amazing is that the Trinitarian theology that's on display in in this chapter. What's amazing here, Jesus is saying, He's going to pray, the Father's going to give. Later on in chapter 14, verse 26, it says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So this is going to be described multiple ways. Jesus says, I'll pray, the Father will send. Then he says in verse 26, uh, the Father will send in my name. And then look over at chapter 15, verse 26. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now Jesus is saying he's going to send from the Father. So you see the Father and the Son working together to send the Spirit. Why does that matter? Because there is a union in the Trinity. The tri-unity. They have a singular purpose, a singular will. God the Father isn't doing something that's contrary to uh, what He's calling the Son to do. And the Son's not going to go do His own thing. And the Spirit's not going to go do His own thing. They're working together. And Jesus is beginning to to unveil the, the full plan and purpose of the triune God from eternity past. And that the Spirit is going to be sent once Jesus departs. This advocate that is going to be sent is the third member of the Trinity. And he is not an impersonal force. He is a divine person. That's really, really key. He's not an it. He's a he. And he is not a manifestation of the Father or the Son. He is a distinct and equal person within the Godhead. But when we baptize... We baptize in the name of the singular name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not just a New Testament teaching. Now, he is found in numerous places in the Old Testament. If you, if you turn with me to the very beginning, most of you know Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.2. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And that's our first introduction to the Spirit of God. If you look at verse 26 in that same chapter, Then God said, Let us, there's a plurality, not speaking necessarily of the, the, the Spirit, but there's a plurality within the Godhead, Let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, hints of the Trinity in the Old Testament. If you turn over to, to Numbers chapter 11, there's a really interesting circumstance. The, the Spirit had, had come upon and was guiding Moses and, and leading him to, to prophesy and strengthening him to, to lead the people. But then there was a foreshadowing of things to come in Numbers 11, beginning in verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of Yahweh. Also, he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and had them stand around the tent. And then Yahweh came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And he took of the spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. And two men remained in the camp and the name of the one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. And now they were coming. They were among those who had been registered, but not uh, gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man, it's probably Joshua, son of Nun, 
and, and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But I love Moses' response in verse 29. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the people of Yahweh were prophets, that Yahweh would put his spirit upon them. Joshua was like, we don't want this. This is not good. And Moses is like, this is very good. This is what we should desire, the spirit of God upon his people. Foreshadowing. If you turn over to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is probably the easiest Old Testament book to prove the Trinity. I'll just mention a, a few passages, though it's in numerous places. Isaiah chapter 48, beginning in verse 12, we see that this speaker is divine. Hear me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am the last. So this is not Isaiah speaking. But then if you jump down to verse 16... Draw near to me, hear this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. So now, Lord Yahweh, the Father, has sent me, the Son, and His Spirit. And if you turn over Isaiah 61, verse 1. One of the, the servant songs in Isaiah. Jesus is going to cite this during his earthly ministry. 61.1, the spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me. And those same three members of the Trinity, the spirit, the father, and the son mentioned. And in the Old Testament, the ministry of the spirit, what we see is that he comes on specific individuals for a specific purpose. For a limited time. He came upon Bezalel while he was building the tabernacle in Exodus 31. He came upon Samson multiple times to go and and slay the the Philistines. And the Spirit would come upon and empower uh, an individual for a specific purpose. But also what's kind of hidden in the background is how Old Testament saints were were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit would, would work invisibly in their hearts, in their lives... And we can deduce that logically because in John chapter 3, when, when Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, what, what does he say? You must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born of water and of spirit. Otherwise, you cannot enter the kingdom. And we know that there were Old Testament saints who entered into the kingdom, so they must have been regenerated by the Spirit. So the Spirit is working in the background in the Old Testament. I love uh, what this theology professor, how he, he puts the working of the, the Spirit in the Old Testament. It's from Larry Pettigrew. Says, Theologically, it would seem that some ministry of the Spirit had to be constantly applied to the Old Covenant believer to distinguish it from the intimacy of the New Covenant indwelling. Perhaps this ministry is best designated abiding. And in the words of the prophet Haggai, in chapter 2, verse 5, As for the promise I have made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. So the spirit dwelt with the Old Testament saints through the community, but would not be in them individually and intimately since the Old Testament saint could not have enjoyed the benefits of the new covenant before it had been inaugurated. Now, now fast forward into the New Testament. and Here's a little bit of a confusing part. 
The last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, appears in the New Testament. I know. But, but John the Baptist, he, he came and he, he was proclaiming something about the ministry of the Spirit. If you, if you turn over to John chapter 1, we have John the Baptist telling us how he had information from God the Father on how to identify the Messiah. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 32. This is John the Baptist. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he abided on him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me, speaking of God the Father, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, The one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So the Messiah is going to be the one who begins the new covenant promises and who pours the Spirit out upon the people of God. All of this was promised in the Old Testament. And the new covenant, which Jesus is going to inaugurate in his life, death, and resurrection, and the promises of the Spirit and the ministry of the Spirit are most clearly explained in these chapters that we are in right now, in John chapters 13 through 16, this farewell discourse. In this discourse, the Spirit's going to be mentioned or promised on five separate occasions. We're in the first one right now, verses 16 and 17 in chapter 14. The next one's going to be in chapter 14, verse 26, as we read. Then also in 15, 26, which we read. And then 16, 7 through 11, and then also 12 through 15. And each time the Spirit is mentioned in promise, He's going to be uh, described as, as doing something else. Some of it's going to be overlapping, but we're going to see the ministry of the Spirit in a profound way in these chapters. And in here, in, in this verse, when Jesus says... I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate. He's, he's giving us a, a name of the Holy Spirit. He's telling us what he is going to come and do. The idea of the advocate in the Greek, it's a, a paraclete. Some old translations just uh, transliterated that word. The idea of, of one who comes and, and helps another. A helping presence. One who brings comfort and strength. And there are some translations that translate the word as comforter, but that's helpful, but not all of the, the full nuance. It makes the spirit kind of sound like a quilt or a shoulder to cry on. He's more than just a comforter. Uh, th- this word is probably best translated, as it has here in the, in the legacy standard, it's best translated as advocate because this word has a very heavy legal connotation. This is a word used for somebody who's representing somebody and coming alongside to help in a legal format, in a legal sense. In other Greek uh, writings in the ancient times, this word was used to describe a person called in to help or summoned to give assistance, summoned to to, to act on behalf of another. And again, we we see this on multiple occasions throughout the scriptures of of somebody coming in and interceding and, and advocating for another person. We see this in Abraham in Genesis 18. Right? He is told that the two angels who were with the pre-incarnate Christ when they came to visit Abraham in chapter 18, those angels are going to go down to Sodom and they're going to bring judgment upon the city. And Abraham says, uh, my nephew's down there. Right? And he's going to plead with God. Right? But what if there's 50 righteous? 
What if there's 45? What if there's 40? And he, he works God down to 10. God, if there's just 10 righteous people there who have trusted you, will you extend grace to the whole city? And God says, yes. Abraham acted as an advocate. Same thing happens in Exodus 32. Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law. He comes back down and Aaron, his brother, has led them into idolatry. Melted down the gold and put it in the fire and out popped a calf, Aaron says. I don't know how that happened. It brings the, the judgment of God. And Moses pleads and prays for mercy and for grace. And what's amazing, profound... Moses prays according to the will of God. He prays according to the, the person, the purpose and the perfections of God. He says, God, what about your name? What are the nations going to think if you destroy your own people? What about the, the promises that you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Moses understood how he should pray. That's what it looks like to be an advocate. And the Holy Spirit is an advocate for all of those who love and follow Jesus. But Jesus, as, as he words this here, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate, another helper. And sometimes there's theologically rich words just based upon one little nuance. And that word another means another of the same kind. Not, not a different kind, which is a, a different Greek word, but another of the same kind. I'm going to give you a helper just like me. In the same way that Jesus was a helper to the disciples during his earthly ministry, that the Spirit is going to continue that ministry once Jesus is gone. So what did Jesus do for his disciples during his earthly ministry? He was there to strengthen, to encourage, to correct, to instruct, to rebuke, and to care for his disciples. And the Spirit does all of that and more for those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ after Jesus has ascended and is gone. And First John 2, 1 even says that Jesus is our advocate here and now in heaven. Jesus was an advocate here. He says, I'm going, but I'm going to send another advocate just like me. And now Jesus has ascended into heaven and is still our advocate. So Jesus makes this promise of a helper, of, of a legal friend who's going to come and be with his disciples. Well, we have this promise of an advocate. And then really the last statement in verse 16 and then all of 17 is going to be an explanation of the type of help that advocate is going to bring. All right, what's going to happen when, when this advocate arrives? How is he going to help the disciples? Well, to begin with, he's going to abide with them forever. That last statement in verse 16. Father's going to give an advocate that he may be with you forever. The Spirit is going to come, and He's not going to be here for a limited time only. The, the, the promise of the Spirit is a forever promise, not to be taken back. The Spirit's not going to be with us for a moment and then depart and leave us. We also see that He's going to dispense or communicate the truth. How is He described in that first statement in verse 17? He is the Spirit of truth. And Jesus had just said earlier in this same chapter, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And now we see that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. There's a close association between the Son and the Spirit. The same phrase is used again elsewhere later on in this upper room discourse, this farewell discourse. 
But this is so important. The spirit who communicates truth. What was amazing as we were, as we were hearing from Tim Carnes this morning about his, his missionary work was profound. As he's going into these other, other nations that are, that are held captive by false religions. This reminds us that the number one tactic of Satan is deception. The number one tactic of Satan is to take the truth and to skew it a little bit. Islam began as an offshoot of Christianity. You wouldn't think that today. But if you read history, the early centuries of Islam, it was a sect of Christianity. Again, off a couple degrees, where is it now? It's abundantly clear. But they are held captive by the lies of that false religion. Satan is the father of lies. He takes, he twists, he deceives. But the spirit is the spirit of truth. He brings clarity and guidance to the people of God. What's also profound is the next statement. Jesus says, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. And the idea there is it is impossible. It is not possible for the world to receive the Spirit. Why? Because they don't know Him. They don't see Him. They're unaware of His working. He works invisibly. Now, now you're going to be able to see where the Spirit is working. That's the whole point of John 3, right? You see where the wind blows, but you don't see the wind. But the Spirit is going to work. But the world cannot receive Him. The Spirit's help is unique to those who know and love and follow Christ. And there's a a contrast. The world cannot receive him, but Jesus says to his disciples, you know him, present tense, that they are aware of him now and know him now, and you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And this is significant because Jesus emphasizes what what I read from that theology professor, Larry Pettigrew. He emphasizes the witness of the Spirit presently right then and right there. But then he adds something else. The Spirit is with you presently, but then in the future tense, he says, the Spirit will be where? In you. See, that's new. That's different. That's, That's new covenant promise. That's what is proclaimed in Ezekiel 36. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to do my judgments. You will inhabit the land that I gave to your father. So you will be my people and I will be your God. What Jesus is promising, he's promising them help. But this is not the help that they expected. But this is help of the highest order. There is no greater help that could be promised to these disciples or to us. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are have trusted in him, then the spirit dwells within you. He is there to lead you, to guide you, to comfort you, to convict you of sin. We're going to see all of that in the the remaining chapters in this upper room discourse. And yet all too often we battle against the spirit within us. We don't yield to him. We we fight against him. We suppress his ministry in our hearts. All too often, we we turn to to human wisdom. 
All too often we turn to our own strengths to respond to the difficulties of life. All too often we are like King Asa of Judah. If you turn back over to to 2 Chronicles 14, King Asa is a unique character because he has a track record of faithfulness. There's times where he's doing a great job. And the overall assessment of him is that he followed Yahweh. Right? 14.2. And Asa did what was good and right in the sight of Yahweh his God. If you look at verse 9 in Second Chronicles 14. There the Ethiopian went out against them with a military force of one million men and three hundred chariots. And he came... And so Asa went out to meet him, verse 10, and they arranged themselves for battle in the valley of Zephathah at Merishah. And then verse 11, then Asa called to Yahweh his God and said, Yahweh, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between those of abundant power and those who have no power. So help us, O Yahweh, our God, for we lean on you and in your name have come against this multitude, O Yahweh. You are our God. Let, no, let not mortal man prevail against you. So Yahweh smote the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Like, so he has this track record of faithfulness. But then in chapter 16, he's having troubles not with a million-man army, but just with the northern kingdom of Israel. They're not a superpower. And it, rather than turning to God, even though he's had a track record of turning to God and God delivering in the past, he turns to the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad. Right? That's, that's just like us. God has delivered us in the past, but what do we like to do? Maybe I'll try this this time. Maybe I'll try something else. Maybe I'll try human strength, human wisdom, human power. And ultimately, Asa would be, would be judged for this inconsistency, for turning away from God. You look at, well, I'll, I'll move... Uh, Move on there, but there's a there's a promise given that the, the Spirit will work. God will work for those who trust Him. I know this is this has been a lot of theology. I want to want to take these last few minutes and, and let's flesh out the implications of of what Jesus is promising here because this is of the utmost importance. And sometimes it's difficult to, to think through like why is this theological topic? How, how does that trickle down into my everyday life, and why does it matter? Well, why does it matter that the, the Spirit dwells within me as a believer? Well, number one, it means you have a, a, a new regenerate heart. Right? As we read in Ezekiel, as we saw in John chapter 3, the Spirit's work in you means you have a new heart, which also means that you are able to obey God, something that you weren't able to do previously. A new heart means that you are saved Regenerate, have a relationship with God. Spirit is within you. Now let's flesh that out some more. Also means that you have help when you need to be bold for Christ. Now these these disciples who are hearing all of this now, they're going to scatter to the wind when Jesus gets arrested. But then later on, they're going to be so bold. Day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes upon them, and they're like they're like new men. Do you know why they're like new men? Because they are new men. The Spirit comes upon them and gives them a new heart. And I love Acts chapter 4. They pray for boldness and wisdom to proclaim. And then they, what do they get? 
boldness and wisdom to proclaim. What do they pray according to? The will of God in Jesus' name. And God answered their prayers. We have help to be bold for Christ because the Spirit indwells us. You also have the help to overcome sin and temptation. Again, we all want help with our struggles. We all need that help. And the Spirit dwelling in you uh, gives hope that you are able to change, that you are able to battle against uh, the temptations that you face in this life. That, that your sin does not have to define you and control and dominate you. Your sin is not your identity. What does the world say? You are what your heart desires. Your feelings lead you, identify you. God says, no, that's not true. Your sin doesn't define you. Other people's sin against you doesn't define you. There is hope for change and transformation. We see that in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, when the Apostle Paul lists off all of these heinous sins, and then he he closes and says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. The ministry of the Spirit is going to help us deal with sin in our hearts and in our lives. We also have hope that others can be saved and be transformed. I, I know many of you who are praying for uh, a spouse, praying for a child, praying for a parent who does not know the Lord, uh, a loved one who has maybe never heard the gospel, a loved one who has maybe heard the gospel and walked away, hardening their heart, living according to their own wisdom and their own ways for a period of time. But there is hope. Why? Because God is able to make people new. Because he is able to transform a heart. Even when it seems like that person's never going to change. Yeah, in and of themselves, they're never going to change. But, but the Spirit works supernaturally, taking out that heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. This gives us hope. This also gives us hope in sanctification. It's discouraging sometimes when people aren't sanctified according to our timetable. Right? Hey, spouse, you shouldn't be working. You shouldn't be still dealing with that sin. I want you to be sanctified. Hey, child, I thought you wouldn't be dealing with this anymore. Frustrating. It's discouraging. But we have hope because the Spirit is at work. And we also need to let the Spirit work. Sometimes we want to be the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit can't sanctify them. I will. I'll go, I'll go handle this, right? No, that's not what we're called to do. When we're called to pray and entrust that sanctifying work to the Spirit. But also, we say that God is able to work in you and through you to reach others with the gospel. Because the Spirit dwells in you. And you, we need to dwell and think about this more than we do. Sometimes we are unnerved at the possibility of having a conversation with our neighbor about the gospel. Right? But as we just heard, what would you do if you lived in a, in a Muslim nation where you have to do secret baptisms? Where if you're going to identify with Christ, someone may show up t- to your house, finding out where you live, and they're not there wanting to experience your hospitality. They're going to subtly and not so subtly encourage you to move, to get out of town, 
to not proclaim the Jesus that you have been proclaiming. We don't have that here. But the Spirit is able to embolden and the Spirit is able to work in us and through us even though we are fearful. We need to to meditate upon this. I love this quote from James Montgomery Boyce. He says, But if we once grasp the thought that the Holy Spirit is a divine person of infinite majesty, glory, and holiness, and power, who in marvelous condescension has come into our hearts to make his abode there and take possession of our lives and make use of them, it will put us in the dust and keep us in the dust. I can think of no thought more humbling or more overwhelming than the thought that a person of divine majesty and glory dwells in my heart and is ready to use even me. That's what we need to reflect upon. Can you go have that conversation? Yes. Why? Because the Spirit is within you. The Spirit is there to empower you, to lead you, to guide you. Jesus has promised to send an advocate, and he has promised to help us through that advocate. He has promised to help and explain the help, and there's going to be even more explanation of the ministry of the Spirit in the coming chapters. Well, this comes down to, do we, do we trust this? Do we trust that what Jesus is saying here is true and good? And on another level, another question would be, do you want help? Christ has sent the helper. He sent an advocate. Do you want help from that helper? The story from David Livingston, a missionary in Africa. He was, he's welcomed by a, a tribal chief named Sekomi. And on one occasion they were together and, and Sekomi said to, to David Livingston, he says, I wish that you would change my heart. Give me medicine to change it, for it is proud, proud and angry, angry always. And Livingston lifted up his his New Testament and was about to tell him the only way in which he could have a new heart, the only way that he could have heart change. But the chief interrupted him. He says, Nay, I wish to have it by medicine. To drink and have it changed at once. For it is always very proud and very uneasy and continually angry with somebody. And then the chief got up and he walked away. God has ordained that help, that hope, that change would come by the power of his son, the word made flesh. The power of the, the written word power of the spirit who is able to change and transform us but all too often we don't want that kind of help we want help of our own making on our terms but there is help and true hope for all who accept god's terms and the help that he offers is able to to bring about complete and utter transformation of heart and of soul you're, if you're struggling to deal with difficulties in life, the solution is not just, I just want these little tips over here. Give me five ways to fix this and three solutions for that. 
Jesus is proclaiming to us the big solution. Our greatest need is the triune God in us. We need a new heart. And we need to rely upon the Spirit within us to grow us, to sanctify us. The Spirit is going to work and make us more like Christ. Are we willing, are we desiring that? That's the question. If you want that kind of help, if you're here this morning saying, I am desperate, you need to look to Jesus in faith, trusting in who he is and what he has done. That he lived a perfect life, he died a sacrificial death, and he rose again from the dead on the third day, demonstrating that he is able to help. He has power over life and death. Can he help you in your everyday problems? Right? You think, you think he has power over life and death, but he can't help you in this or that? All of life's problems are dealt with and addressed in God's word and can be changed and transformed by the power of God's spirit. That is the significance of what we're studying here in John 13 through 16. If you look to Jesus, there is hope and there is help. Cry out to him. Ask him to transform your heart. Ask him to be born again. Ask him to do what you cannot do. Come with it. Empty hands and an open heart. Just cry out to him. Lord, change me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. And he has promised that if we do that, he will answer that prayer. Amen?